perfect is not good enough. Don't let the title of today's message discourage you. We need to realize it's not the quantity of our faults that matter, but rather it's the nature of our faults. And having said that, let me remind all of us how merciful and how kind our Lord is. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 103 and verses 10 through 14. He said, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust." As I think about the Lord Jesus and his assessment of this church at Ephesus, I want to remind you that the Lord is not a nitpicker. But at the same token, I want to remind us all that it is his church. We are his church. He knows what he's looking for, and he knows what he dislikes. Have you ever met any of these fine connoisseurs of churches? I've met a few in my time and in my ministry, and as I think about our congregation, if we have one in our midst, you've done a good job of hiding it because I'm not aware of it. But I do know this, that fine connoisseurs, uh, there always tends to be at least one or more in every church. And of these fine connoisseurs, I would say this, that criticism of churches is not their problem. Jesus is criticizing his church. Listen, there is a time where it is appropriate and even righteous to have criticism toward a church because as we've seen in the previous two messages, not every church is the same and anything doesn't go and just any old thing is not acceptable in the sight of God and it ought not be acceptable to us. Amen. So the criticism of churches is not the issue. The criteria is the problem. I thought about several areas that are typical areas of criticism that these fine connoisseurs of churches generally evaluate a church by. Number one, it's music. You know, the, most of the people, sadly, are in a particular church today, and their number one criteria is the church's music. I believe music is an important part of our Christian life, but I don't believe that we should place any more emphasis on it than the Word of God places. And, and listen, today, modern Christianity and modern churchianity has placed an inordinate amount of importance and value on music. I think secondly, youth ministry, that's always a big criteria for these fine connoisseurs. What do you have for our youth? What do you have for our teenagers? You know what? I love young people and I love teenagers. But I've seen through the years, and listen, if you're a young people or if you're a teenager... Please take no offense at this. As a pastor, I've seen a lot of people grow up, and I've seen a lot of heartache, and I've seen a lot of failure or perceived failure by parents and pastors. And you know, you've got parents and pastors that pour themselves into your life, and many of them are making huge sacrifices in order to try to give you a fighting chance for God. And sometimes young people take that for granted, and they just assume that, well, you know, that's no big deal. And then they just throw it all away for the world and don't even give a second thought that they're breaking the heart of their pastor and certainly of their parents. We live in that day and age that Solomon described in Proverbs chapter number 30. There is a generation that is pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their own filthiness. That is a prophetic uh, statement of Proverbs in Solomon's wisdom. And certainly, certainly we are in that day and age today. So I believe that we ought to do everything that we can to reach children and to reach teenagers. 
But I also know that if you put all of your eggs in that basket, that in many cases you're just sadly going to be disappointed and frustrated. You know what we ought to put? You know where we ought to put the eggs in our basket? We ought to put it in disciples. doesn't matter whether it's children, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged families, older adults. We need to try to invest in whoever wants to hear the Word of God. It becomes an issue of heart, not an issue of age. You know, it doesn't matter if someone's got a heart for God and says, hey, preacher, hey, parent, I want to know the truth. Then you know what? We ought to be focusing on what we have rather than uh, lamenting on what we don't have. So many churches just put so much in that youth ministry that they neglect the people that are sitting there saying, hey, feed me, challenge me, exhort me. The third criteria is facility. You know what? I think that a facility ought to be clean and it ought to be, it, it ought to be the best that it can possibly be. We're certainly living in a day and age where visuals are extremely important. I understand that. We try to accommodate that as much as is feasible. But at the same token, we're not interested in competing with some of these modern ministries that are basically saying, hey, look at us, how wonderful that we are. I believe that a facility ought to represent our God and our Savior as being a God of quality and cleanliness and order. Let all things be done decently and in order. I thank God for the people that help out with the facility to make sure that we have a facility that is up to date and clean and orderly and not, it doesn't look like you just, uh, have you ever, have you ever visited someone and sat down in their living room and you can tell that it's their living room? I mean, they got all of their stuff. They're having to scoot their stuff aside from the couch so that you've got a place to sit. You know what, when that happens, you're reminded that, hey, I'm in their living room. We want to have a facility so that someone can come into this building for the very first time and not feel like they're intruding into someone else's club. And people, you know, when we, when we, when we move stuff and people who, who claim their pew and camp out. It's like you might as well engrave your name on the, the, the wood in front of you. It's like, you know what? Let's, let's make sure that when somebody comes in, they feel welcome. And I thank God that that's what we have here. Facility's important, but it's not a major criteria. Listen, some, some place can have a wonderful building. I've seen some of these mega ministries on TV, and they have facilities, and they have visuals that are impressive but they don't have the truth of God's Word. So that's not the best criteria. And then, of course, number four, and I've said this recently, preaching style. Uh, so many people today want a preacher that entertains them and, and, and gives them a little emotional candy so that they can feel something. Nothing wrong with feeling something, but are you learning the Word of God? Are you being given wisdom and understanding for the Christian life? It does no good to be able to have a great emotional experience here on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or any other day that we're gathered together, if it doesn't help you on Monday when you go out there and face the world and take a beating. You know what gets me the most when I think about these fine connoisseurs of churches? It's the people who know they are just absolutely sure that they know how the preacher ought to be doing their job and they've never done it before. Or if they've done it before, they've not done it successfully or for any, uh, any, you know, long term at all. And so they've got it all figured out, but they want to sit and be the armchair quarterback and they want to critique how you're doing it. You know, I have people that, that are suggestive from time to time. Hey, preacher, why don't we do this? You know what I learned years ago? I probably learned it from Brother Runyon or, uh, somebody else, I, I, I don't know, but when somebody has a suggestion, I usually say, hey, that's great. When are we going to start? Meaning, when are you going to start? 
And about 9.5 out of 10 times, the suggestion never goes anywhere. Because they were wanting to give the preacher an assignment. They want influence, but they don't want to bear the burden. And that's dangerous territory. Any pastor that's pastored any length of time knows that that's usually the person that's going to end up biting you and eventually causing problems. Now, Ephesus, we get back to our text here. Ephesus is practically a perfect church. But the one area that they have the problem in, uh, it's a big one. In fact, we might be able to say it's the biggest one. What was the Lord's criticism of Ephesus? He said, thou hast left thy first love. Now, I want you to notice that the Lord says of Ephesus, you left it. He didn't say you lost it. I think down deep when we leave our first love, if we will stop and take inventory and look back on our pathway of life and be honest with ourselves, we can, we can locate where in the path of our life that we veered away from that first love kind of relationship. When you lose something, sometimes it's an accident. But when you leave something, there's something going on in our heart. Now, the result of them leaving their first love, look at verse number five. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. From whence. Whence is the, the when. When did it happen? He said, remember whence thou art falling. The result of leaving our first love is a fall. And you know, there are times when we stumble and we fall in our Christian life. Solomon said, a just man falleth seven times and riseth again. You know, when Solomon said seven times, I don't think that he was talking about keeping score. I think that he's making a profound statement, much like the Lord Jesus said, when he said that we should forgive our brother until 70 times seven. Jesus wasn't saying, you know, increase the the limit to 490. What Jesus was saying is that the numbers don't matter, just keep forgiving, amen? The just man falleth seven times. You don't say, well, that was my seventh mess up. I guess I can quit now. That's not what Solomon was saying. He's saying that a just man is may stumble and may fall, but we're going to keep getting back up, amen? In 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 12, Paul said, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Oh, how many times have I heard God's people misapply that that verse. Somebody comes along and says, you know what? I'm ready to serve God. I'm I'm on fire for God and this is what I'm going to do and that's what I'm going to do. And they go, oh, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And you know what the problem is, is they're using that verse to say, oh, you better take, you know, you're going to fall if you don't humble yourself. That's not what it's saying. Paul's saying, if you think you stand, nothing wrong with that, but take heed lest you fall. What's he saying take heed to? The next verse, verse 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul's saying, listen, if you're standing, great, but make sure that you pay attention that temptations are going to come and the temptations that you have are not unique to you. They are bearable. Everybody's going through something similar and God always will make a way to escape that we can bear that temptation. Isn't that a wonderful promise that God gives us? Someone once said, if you're not as close to the Lord as you once were, you're backslid. Well, you know, in my opinion, this seems just a little harsh. 
Perhaps maybe it's a little shock and awe from the preacher with good intentions. Listen, a relationship needs to have feeling. But stability and security is not a bad indicator of a good relationship either. And you know, that statement, if you're not as close to the Lord as you were in the past, then you're backslid. That statement, while it has good intentions to get people back to their first love, people that it's not relevant to who maybe have lost some of that feeling or going through a rough patch in life, it does nothing more than discourage them thinking, oh, I'm backslid. And then they try to get things right with God, but they're trying to solve a problem that's really not the problem. And then they get further discouraged. Listen, backsliding by definition is a turning away. It's an apostasy. It's a withdrawing. Solomon said in Proverbs 14, 14, he said, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Listen, backsliding, it starts in, a, in the heart, but it's an apostasy. It's a turning away. It's a rejection. The, the, the prophet Isaiah talked about Israel as a backsliding heifer. That backsliding heifer, I've heard that explained that as you're trying to lead that heifer, you know what they do? They, they backslide. It doesn't mean that they slid down a hill or an incline. It means that they're digging in with their, their front hooves. And as the, as the owner is trying to pull them this way, they're doing this. Now, I've personally seen cows and heifers do that. It's like they're trying to back off. They're backsliding. And no matter, you got to pull them and you got to drag them where they need to go. But in their heart, they don't want to go there. Now listen, if you are in this spiritual condition, you are backslidden and you know what God's trying to lead you and what God's trying to do and you just keep pushing, you've got different ideas, then listen, that phrase is relevant to you. If you're backslidden, you need to get right with God. But so often this concept of what we're looking at here today, we've left our first love. Listen, relationships that go cold can and may lead to divorce. But a cold relationship is not the equivalent of a divorce. Just because you've gone cold on the Lord does not mean that He looks down upon you as a totally backslidden child of God. I think the lesson that we all need to learn from this is that us preachers need to stop being over dramatic. A lot of good intentions sometimes, but sometimes preachers trying to do some shock and awe and help this person over here is shredding this person over here that just needs some encouragement and some instruction. Sometimes we spend too much time focusing on the squeaky wheel and the bad apple. And listen, just like I said earlier, it's not the amount of faults that we have that matters it's the the quality what what type of faults do we have so i want to ask a question and then take a look at this if we've left our first love we need to remember we need to figure out what causes a loss of feeling in any love relationship what causes it you know we got to look back and say where did we go astray Well, number one, I would say this, we forget what attracted us in the first place. Now, there's nothing wrong with physical attraction. Nothing wrong with that. I've preached for years to young people. Look, you need to marry someone that is saved and spiritual. And you need to worry more about their character and and their integrity than their looks. And young people are just like, preacher, what are you saying? i got to marry somebody that's dog ugly? No, I'm not saying that. Listen, if you, attraction is something, if you find the one that God's got for you, you're going to be attracted to him. Now let me say this. Get your head and your eyes out of Hollywood. Because all that does is it taints you and you think that 
that, that whoever you're going to be interested in, that they've got to compete with Max Factor. That's not a name, by the way. That's makeup and lenses and camera and digital editing. Let me tell you something. This whole world is marketing sensuality. I've seen movie stars in person. And I've seen that same movie star on the screen, and it's just like, wow, they're pretty attractive in the movie, but in person, yikes. And I'm not exaggerating. It's like, whoa, don't ever underestimate the power of makeup. Powerful, powerful stuff. So don't, don't, don't start having these expectations. You know, if you look past just that physical appearance and you start looking at a person's soul and their character and their personality, you're going to find that the physical is going to become attractive and you don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about that. There's nothing wrong with physical attraction, but please listen. It will fade in time. And speaking of movie stars, I mean, have you noticed some of them that are getting in their 60s and 70s and even 80s that had plastic surgery to hang on to their good looks? Time is not doing them any favors. I tell you what, the plastic surgery might have worked. And by the way, who invented the lip job? I hate fake lips. I mean, I've seen, listen, I, you, you've seen it. You've seen, seen movie stars that's like, wow, she was really pretty. She was really cute. And then she's like, it's like somebody injected, you know, an air in their lip and they can't talk and it's just all deformed. And I think, why'd you do that to yourself? Anyhow, just a pet peeve of mine. And then in age, you look at them and it's just like, it's like, whoa, not a good thing. The physical, I don't care what you do, it's going to fade. And that's for men and for women. And if it's all that you have, then your relationship is already in trouble and you don't even know it. Besides physical attraction, I think about what attracted me most to my wife was the fact, and this is, I'm being honest here, the fact that she was interested in me. I mean, she was the preacher's daughter. She played the piano and she sang specials in church and I felt like some mutt off the street. <laughs> and, and when I found out that she was actually interested in me, oh, it just, it, aside from her the physical attraction, it just, I just couldn't believe it that she would actually be interested in me because I felt so unworthy of her. And you know, that reminds me of when I got right with the Lord and I started thinking about the Lord actually, what He's done in my life. And I couldn't help but think about 1 John 4.19. We love Him because He first loved us. Have you ever thought about that? He first, he started this love relationship. And if you think about it, he didn't start loving us the way that we are today. Of course, some people think that they've really arrived and they've just got, got life and Christianity all figured out. But you know what? He loved us when we were extremely unloved, when we were something or another unlovely. I mean, we were sinners and we had, I mean, we were wicked and we were in the depths of despair. You say, preacher, I wasn't in the depths of despair. Why not? Do you not realize that your sin, do you not realize the offense that we are to a holy God in breaking his commandments? Oh, you talk about, Brother Ralph talked about the hardness of heart. Brother 
Terry was talking last night that he looked at people and he, he could relate to what the Lord said when he looked out and he saw the people as sheep having no shepherd. Oh, listen, we are a lost, lost uh, culture today. But the problem is, is people are lost and they are clueless about their spiritual condition before God. I mean, they're pagan and they're heathen and they're wicked and it doesn't even bother them. You know why that is? Because the holiness of God is lost even in Christian churches today. I mean, the Ten Commandments have become the Ten Suggestions. When we break one of God's commandments and He doesn't strike us dead with lightning, then we think, oh, it's no big deal. I'm getting away with it. I got news for you. You're not. When we stand before a holy God, listen, the Bible says the earth and the heavens going to flee away. It's an awesome sight. I mean, God's not going to be looking down and go, oh, I love you so much. He's going to be saying, what do you have to say for yourself? You ever, you ever stood before a real stern judge before and you were guilty and you knew that that judge had the power to throw you into prison? That judge had power over your life because he represented the law and you were a lawbreaker and you were caught. You were busted. They had the goods on you. Let me tell you something. That is a fearful thing. And the reality of it is the whole human race ought to feel that way toward our Heavenly Father, the judge of this entire creation. But we don't feel that way. We think that Jesus loves us because we're so lovable. Because after all, we love ourselves so much, don't we? And herein lies the problem. If we would see ourselves the way that God sees us, we would be feeling, we would be wanting to run and hide from God unless we had something or someone that could propitiate God and make us favorably inclined. Now, thank God Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary did that for us. But sadly, the common professing Christian doesn't see it that way. They are so full of self-love and ego that they just think that, well, God just loves me no matter what, and that's just the way that it is. Listen, His love is unconditional. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. When God looks down upon the human race, the love is the fact that God says, you are messed up. You are at enmity with me. I ought to, I ought to drop your worthless carcass in a devil's hell. What are you going to do about it? So we try religion. We try being good. God says, you think that's good enough? That's filthy rags. That's filthy rags. That's disgusting in my eyes. You thinking that you're good enough to earn my favor. And so the person who's sincere and genuine and sees themselves the way that we ought to see ourselves says, I don't know what to do. Is there a savior? Is there someone that can make you happy with me, God? And God says, well, that's a great question. My son and what he did on the cross. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. Number two, we become unthankful. We're, we're talking about what causes the feeling in a love relationship to, to waver. Number two, we become unthankful and we take the other for granted. We get bored. Things that used to be brand new and exciting, they become, well, we know them. We, we've already heard them. The preacher's preaching a truth. I've heard that a thousand times. <sighs> Our spouse, the one that we love and we live with, we, we know their behavior. We know what they're thinking. We know how they're going to react. And we know, we know all these things and we lose that excitement and we stop courting. We stop communicating. We stop listening. Listen, in a marriage relationship, when you start becoming unthankful and taking the other for granted, your personal hygiene and appearance gets lax. It's like, oh, no big deal. 
Listen, before you go to bed, men, brush your teeth. Ooh, did I just hit a nerve? It got cold in here. No, I'm not representing any dentist. I'm not worried about your tooth decay. I'm worried about your relationship. I mean, listen, you brushed your teeth on your first date, I hope. Right? I mean, you went to, you went to extra precaution to make sure that everything was perfect. I mean, you wore your best clothes. You might even splashed on a little cologne, right? You wanted to make sure that you looked good, you smelled good, and you were at your very best. But then we start taking the other for granted, and we don't dress up for each other. You know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, Being from Idaho, Idaho, if you've ever been there, and I don't know how it is today, but back when I was growing up, you talk about a casual people. Idahoans are casual. I mean, blue jeans and tennis shoes for every occasion. Amen? Listen, I wore a sport, co- sport coat and dress slacks to the prom with football cleats. I know that sounds crazy. I don't, I'm not talking about the cleats. Back then, these turf shoes, it was like, they were like a tennis shoe. And they didn't have like big cleats. They just had little knobs. They were turf shoes. And they were real common. People were wearing them. I wore those to the prom. And I wasn't the only one. You say, wow, that is weird. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I grew up in casual Idaho. You know, my wife grew up in Asheville. And and I don't know if this was a family thing, but you know what? When you go places, she thinks that tennis shoes are just kind of a little too casual. And so we have a little tug of war sometimes. I want to wear my tennis shoes. And she's like, oh, don't wear tennis shoes. Wear, wear nicer shoes. She, she has a shoe fetish or something. I don't know. It's weird. And I'm thinking, what does it matter as long as my feet are comfortable, right? Well, it matters to her. And you know how often that I don't wear tennis shoes? Not because I'm afraid that she'll fuss at me, but because, and this may come as a surprise, honey, but sometimes I do it just because I want to please her, because I care about her. Things like that matter. And you know what? In a relationship, sometimes we start taking the other for granted. Wouldn't you agree with me that here we are in 2021, casual contemporary Christianity, And, you know, people come to church and they say, we're going to church to meet with the Lord, right? Then why do we wear shorts and flip-flops and a tank top to God's house when we're going to worship Him? You say, I don't think that the Lord cares how I dress. Really? Have you read the Bible at all? Because it sure does seem like He does care. And even if he didn't, we ought to have enough class to understand how relationships work. And we ought to say, you know what? You know, this is, I'm going to to put on something nice for the Lord. Now, if you're putting on something nice to try to impress the preacher or fit in or blend in, well, I don't care. And that's probably what most people's motives were. And so they figured that's not a big deal. So I might as well go casual. But the problem is, is they weren't doing it unto the Lord to begin with. They were doing it unto men. And when it become became acceptable to men to be casual, guess what? Everybody went casual. The point was not the dress. The point was, what do we really think of our Savior? We start living to please ourselves rather than the other. You know, I thought about this before my wife and I were married, and we had a three and a half year engagement, by the way, not because we wanted to. We we did it because we wanted to do right. 
And so we waited, and that was rough. But before we got married, I used to drive, sometimes walk if I was low on gas money. And during those days, that was common. I would go down to the local post office, which was about, oh, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a tenth or two tenths of a mile from my apartment out in Fairview, North Carolina. I would walk or drive down there to the post office because they had one of those wall-mounted payphones. And on that payphone, some of you may remember them, they had these like stainless steel panels with all these dots in them. Now, I don't know if that was a sound panel or if that was just decoration or, or what it was, but I would stand there. You say, why didn't you call from your apartment? I couldn't afford a phone. Well, I probably could have, but I didn't want to pay for a phone because I'm saving money so I can get married. I mean, I saved every penny that I could. I worked two, two and a half jobs, mowed lawns. I did everything I could. Why? For her, and I didn't. Be, I didn't. I never begrudged that. Not one single iota. But I'd go down there and I'd stand at that phone booth so that I could talk to my sweetheart on the phone. And I'm talking about in the mountains in January and February. And as I'd be standing there on the phone with this freezing cold piece of plastic up against my face. My breath would be making frost on those stainless steel panels. And so while I'm talking to her, I would just kind of nervous habit. I'd write stuff, you know, maybe a little heart or something in the frost. And sometimes it would get bad enough that I'd actually have to use my fingernails. So I'm standing there, I'm shivering and I'm freezing outside. This is not a phone booth, by the way. This isn't enclosed. And I'm freezing talking to her for, I think, what we have a limit from Brother Runyon of an hour, 15 minutes? Wow, he was brutal. Man, I wish I remembered that. I would have, I would have done nothing. <laughs> 15 minutes that I got to talk to my sweetheart. And I don't remember ever Listen, I don't, I never complained about it because I don't ever remember even feeling a complaint about it. I was just so, so thankful that I was able to throughout the week, we got to spend some time together at church or after church and uh, we would go on, you know, a date every week. A lot of times we'd end up going to a, a, a revival meeting nearby and, you know, we, we, I relished every minute that I got to spend with her. And now I sit in my comfortable recliner and I block her out while she's talking to me because I'm watching TV. And It's pretty sad, isn't it? When I worked at a machine shop right after getting right with God... I couldn't wait for break time because when it was break time, I could go in and while I'm eating my lunch in the break room, I could pull out my green Gideon's New Testament Bible out of my pocket and I could sit there and I could read the word of God during my lunch break. And then I'd go back to deburring parts or running a vapor blaster, menial stuff. And the whole time I'd be sitting there, just couldn't wait till break time so that I could read the Bible rather than be at work. We become unthankful and we take the other for granted. Number three, we develop unrealistic expectations over time. Listen, expectations are a part of every relationship, but unrealistic ones are the demise of every relationship. When I got right with God in 1986, I never thought that the Lord would want to use me in any meaningful way. I knew I was unworthy. He showed me that He did want to use me. And when I discovered that, I was in such awe. I don't know how many tears I wept when I realized that God wasn't done with me because of my past. He was even more wonderful to me than I had imagined. 
And then, after the years passed by, I forgot that. And because my life, he started cleaning me up and getting me on track. And then something crept in that I didn't even recognize that was so dangerous to the relationship. I started feeling just maybe a little bit worthy. And then the expectations started coming. I expected God to do something that God never promised that he would do. I think about the Apostle Paul, an amazing Christian. He was able to maintain his feeling of unworthiness without becoming pitiful or resorting to false humility. Listen to this passage of Scripture that I shared with one of the brothers this past week. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 9, Paul said, "...for I am the least of the apostles." that am not meet to be called an apostle. Why? Because he says, I persecuted the church of God. But then he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul had genuine humility. He knew that he was the least of all the apostles. He knew that we and he are not worthy of the grace of God. But he thanked God that God bestowed that grace upon him. Enabled him, motivated him to outlabor the other apostles. Hey, this is Johnny come lately. This is not the guy that spent all the time with Jesus and tasted uh, the bread and, 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 and the fish that Jesus miraculously blessed. This is not the one that leaned upon his breast at the Last Supper. This is one who got struck down by lightning on the road to Damascus. And the Lord says, hey, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. How, how'd you like that for an introduction? <laughs> Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Saul says... Who art thou, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's almost like Paul's introduction to Jesus. Jesus was almost like picking a fight with him. Ah, you're persecuting. You want want some of me? Here I am. You're persecuting my people, and here I am. Paul was struck down there, and he was blind. I think that the Lord has had his attention. Wouldn't you agree? But he didn't experience all of that that the other apostles did. But he said, I labored more abundantly. I wonder sometimes that maybe in the Christian life, we have so much that we end up taking the Lord for granted. And then we start having these unrealistic expectations. We think, look, I've been faithful I've been going to church. I tried to raise my child. I tried to do right. And listen, we know that when we do right, it's not always easy. And then we expect that God's going to bless. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us. He does. But sometimes we still have troubles and trials. Did not our Lord, who did all, he did everything perfectly and he did wonderful things for people and the same people that said, crucify him, crucify him. And our Lord says to us, he said, is the disciple greater than his Lord? He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so the problem is that we get these expectations that are unrealistic and they're not expectations that the Lord promised us. Hey, you know what the Lord promised the Apostle Paul? He said, I'm going to show you great things that you're going to have to suffer for my namesake. I think that we try to we try to motivate people to accept Christ and we promise them all these wonderful things. How'd you like an invitation like Paul had? Hey, who wants to get saved? Your life might become a living hell, but Jesus wants to save you. <laughs> and yet, that very well could be the case. It's been the case for many and throughout church history, why should we think that we're any better than them? Let me go to my last point, number four. What causes the loss of feeling in any love relationship? Number four, we let failures pile up 
and we fail to forget past sins. Listen, we remember the other's anger, but we forget how we provoke them. We forget how we, as they say in boxing, hit below the belt. We did something and then they retaliated. Then all we can think about is what they did. Sometimes we don't forget and move on from the failure of others, but sometimes we can't forget and move on from our own failures. Hey, we're imperfect. I messed up. I'm no longer perfect. I guess I'll just kind of hide and keep a distance lest I fail again. Let me tell you something. We've all failed. We've all sinned. We've all made our mistakes in every love relationship. And we need to learn how to forgive and then move on. You say, well, I've forgiven, but I can't forget. Okay, then keep that to yourself and continue to turn that over for God. Too often we have a photographic memory of others' failures, but selective Alzheimer's with our own. By the way, there's two types of failures in a relationship. There's overt and covert. Overt are the ones where we mess up and it's open, it's outward, it's above the table. But covert, we talk about covert operations. It's the ones that are behind the scenes. It's failure. Not that we committed an offense, but we failed to do what we ought to do in a relationship. 1 John 1, verse 8 through 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In conclusion this morning, Revelation 2, verse number 5, what does the Lord Jesus say to Ephesus? Listen, you've left your first love. He said, if you don't get it right, He said, I'm going to come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of His place except thou repent. Listen, that candlestick, we said it uh, lesson number one of this series. We said everything on earth has a representation in heaven. That candlestick, removing it from his place, listen, that may sound like no big deal. That's a huge deal. When a church loses its candlestick, it no longer is a church. The light is gone. When a church loses its light, it becomes a social club. When it becomes a social club, rather than influencing the world, it becomes influenced by the world. Now listen, you may be practically perfect in your Christian life, but if you've left your first love, you're in great danger. The Lord says here, you got all these things going. Nine out of ten, you're practically perfect. But if you have left your first love, he says, if you don't get this fixed, I'm taking away your candlestick. Have you forgotten what attracted you to the Lord Jesus to begin with? Have you taken him for granted and stopped courting, listening, communicating? Stopped putting on your best for him? Have you unknowingly developed unrealistic expectations of Him and your Christian life? Or have you let past failures pile up? The cure for Ephesus is the same cure for you and I. The Lord says here, remember whence thou art fallen. Remember, stop, stop what you're doing. Clear all the clutter out of your mind. Take a breath. Take a break. Turn off the device. Have some alone time, some quiet time to reflect, to think, to talk to God and say, God, when did it happen? What caused it to happen? And you know what? If you can't totally figure it out, i got to say this, remembering the past and all that God has done for you is what we all need to do. Remember, and then the Lord says, repent, repent. God commands it. God grants it. Too many people overcomplicate repentance. Listen, do your job and let God do his. Repent. 
acknowledge it, confess it, face it, and then turn away from it and tell the Lord, say, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm taking your side against me. I've been going on this direction. I've left my first love. Lord, I want to go back. And then the Lord says, do the first works. The first works. Not autopilot. Not just nothing more than human willpower and character, worrying about what the preacher thinks or what your family would think. We're not talking about carrying on your family legacy. We're not talking about worrying, well, what would Brother Wilson or Brother Pennell think? None of that matters. What does Jesus think? And get back to a life that's motivated by our love and our respect of our wonderful Savior. As I close, I want to just draw your attention to a very interesting character in the Word of God by the name of Jacob. In Genesis 32 and verse number 24, Jacob has, he's been, he's spent, I mean, 20 plus years in Padanaram. He gave testimony later on in life how that his sleep left him. He was stressed. I mean, he worried all of the time. He had all these wives and all these kids, and I mean, it, he was a mess. And you know what? He he spun the his own web that he was trapped in through his deception. He thought that he could manipulate his way or even manipulate the will of God without God's presence and. Boy, it it, it worked out fine for a while. He got what he wanted. But after a while, he didn't want what he got. And that's exactly what will happen in our Christian life if we cut corners and don't go through the hoops that God has placed and ultimately trust Him. And he said he was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, this is Jacob, or the, the, the man, this is God actually. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, Jacob speaking, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. You know, when we leave our first love and the feeling and our Christianity, when it leaves us and we remember, we repent, we try to do the first works, listen, grab a hold of God and don't let go. Don't let go. Don't let anything get between you and the Savior. Jacob had all kinds of problems in the past and failures Jacob was a mess, but Jacob got to the end of himself, and he said, God, I want you back. And you notice what the Lord said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. You remember the last time that he was asked what his name was, and what did he say? Isaac. And the Lord said, I'm not going to call you Jacob. Jacob means supplanter, conniver, manipulator. I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. I'm going to call you Israel because as a prince with God, you've prevailed. Listen, we see there the work of the grace of God. The grace of God working in conjunction with Jacob's desires. Do you want God in your... Listen, if you don't care about your relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing that's been said today is going to matter. But if you have a heart for the Lord and you love Jesus Christ, but you've just lost that feeling, then let's do what he says to do. Let's remember and let's repent and let's get back on track and start doing the right things. You know, I've found in my marriage relationship that you can't always just sit around and wait for the feeling. Sometimes you've got to make the feeling happen. Sometimes when things are out of whack in a relationship, you got to break the ice and you just got to say, honey, I love you. Even if you're upset, even if you don't feel it, just start doing the first works and you start treating the other the way that you ought to treat them. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find that the feeling comes back as 
you show love and they respond to your love and then you feel better about it and then they feel better about it and the whole thing starts snowballing in the right direction instead of the wrong direction. The answer is so simple. The Lord doesn't complicate it. The Lord wants to have a good, close, felt relationship with you and I. Have you left your first love? Well, there's still hope, folks. There's still hope. I say let's get it back and let's fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ all over again. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for your patience and your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, if ever there was someone that's lovely, it's you, Lord. Your goodness, Lord, I don't even know how to describe your goodness. It's beyond my words. It's beyond my comprehension. Your goodness, your mercy, your kindness, and above all, your love for us. You are a gracious gracious Savior. Lord, I want to confess publicly that I love you, Lord. And uh, I'm sorry for the areas that I've failed you, and I'm sorry for drifting away from that first love, taking you for granted, having unrealistic expectations, letting my failures and sins pile up, Cause me to withdraw rather than to draw near to you. Lord, I want I want to be where you'd have me to be. And I pray for everyone here today that the Holy Spirit would help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Remain seated, has bowed and eyes closed. The altar is open. If you'd like to come down here and talk to the Lord. The Lord spoke to your heart. You've left that first love. Let's get it back today. Let's get back on track for the Lord. Maybe something that's been said inadvertently has spoke to your heart about your marriage relationship. I know for me personally, it seemed like as I studied and prepared... It was just a seesaw back and forth between conviction as a child of God and conviction as a husband. Let's stand off our feet. We'll be dismissed. I'd like to ask Brother Glenn Coppinger to dismiss us in prayer. When he's finished praying, then you are dismissed. God bless you. Hope you have a great week. Look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. Brother Glenn.
Thank you.